The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. President Biden said in the Democratic primary debate in 2020 that when he was in charge, there would be, quote, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. And it seemed like he was going to keep that promise when he said that, in fact, despite the legal challenge from 12 states to lift the pause that Biden put on new drilling permits, that the judgment did not compel the government, he said, to issue oil leases. Then just before holding the lease auction, the Biden administration said the law did force them to make oil leases in the Gulf. And now after the auction, they're saying, oh, the administration did not have to go ahead with oil leases. I mean, what's going on, Jay? Is this just the typical politician flip flop? No, it's it's not typical, but it's typical of President Biden. I mean, this man and his whole administration is off the rails entirely. I don't think we should uh, expect anything that I would call sane or organized or in the best interests of the population or any particular group or industry. So nothing surprises me. I mean, it really would be impossible uh, for Mr. Biden to say anything and do anything that would surprise me. He has no need to be organized or on target or do the right thing. He's absolutely power mad as the entire Democratic Party is now. They They own the country at least till next November, and they're taking advantage of it. So they don't have meetings to recognize what you just quoted in these flip-flops as putting a bad spin on their party. It's just, it's business as usual. Yeah, they have a permanent bad spin. But fortunately, at this moment, at least, he's allowing the drilling to go ahead and he's promoting it. So we should try to get him not to change course again. And our guest today to talk about offshore oil drilling, we have Joe Limecooler, the chief operating officer of Beacon Offshore Energy. Beacon is a producer of upstream oil and gas from assets located in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. Joe is responsible for all company offshore engineering and operations. Before that, from 2012 to 2019, he was vice president of drilling for LLOG Exploration based in Louisiana. Before that, he was offshore well delivery manager for Shell International ENP company, covering all of the Gulf of Mexico operations. And the list goes on. I mean, Joe is so well qualified in this field that he serves on the board of directors of the National Ocean Industries Association and is also chair of their Health, Safety and Environment Subcommittee. 
Besides various awards, Joe has bachelor and master's degrees in geology, forestry, and petroleum engineering. And he took part in the Presidential Oil Spill Commission and has testified before Congress on a number of occasions. So we're certainly very fortunate to have him on the show today. So welcome to the program, Joe. Well, good, glad to be here, guys. <laughs> Great. Well, Joe, I want to start off for our listeners' sake in having you describe an offshore drilling platform. And the questions I want you to, to answer for our listeners is, what's in general the size of a platform in yards or uh, however you measure it? What is the average or range of depths that the platforms are drilling, or let's say when they enter the bottom of the ocean? And are these platforms uh, anchored or are they just floating in the ocean? Well, that's a good question, Jay. Uh, actually, there, there's actually two types of, of structures that those of us in history refer to. There are platforms which predominantly simply handle the oil production. The oil flows from the seafloor through what are called risers, and they're catenary risers. They kind of bend and bow with the, with the wind and the waves. And they come from the seafloor up, bringing the oil up to the platform. And on the platform, we have like a refinery, we have the ability to separate oil from gas, oil from water. We, we spin out all the detectable oil from the water prior to disposing the salt water back into the Gulf. The oil goes ashore on a pipeline, and the gas goes ashore on a pipeline. So all the export structures in the Gulf of Mexico have two export lines, pipelines that go down to the seafloor and head to the refinery. So they come out of the well on the seafloor, they come up to the platform where we separate the oil, the water, and the gas, we measure the production, and the production gets allocated to various wells and leases. Multiple wells and leases feed into a platform, and then the oil gets pumped to the refinery. Everything is contained within pipelines. So they're really, on 99% of the time, or even more than that, the oil never literally sees the light of day. It's totally self-contained within the production system and the export system. Mm -hmm. yeah, the platforms are quite large. Uh, the largest one out there is operated by BP, and it's called Thunder Horse. Uh, it is 446 feet long and 367 feet uh, in width. So it's a football field in all directions and more, including oh, cool. the end zones. Wow. To give you guys an overall size for it. These things are multi-stories. It's a little city out there. They have full capabilities for the crews to stay out for as long as 28 days at a time and uh, generally handle what's called POB or personnel on board of uh, upwards of the larger ones can go up to 250 people on board and the smaller ones typically have around 30 to 40. So that's production. I think people always get a rig confused with a platform. There are some production platforms such as Thunder Horse which are large enough to actually have a rig on it as a permanent mounted rig on the platform that moves from slot to slot so they can move from well to well. But for the most of the drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, it's done by what's called a MODU, a mobile offshore drilling unit. These are ships or square units, which are called semi-submersibles. Um, virtually all of them float. Once you get into a water depth deeper than about 300 feet, you have to, you're drilling off of a, a floating platform or floating rig. So they're all floating. Uh, some are moored. Most all your production facilities in the Gulf of Mexico, with the exception of one, are moored. All of your drilling units are either moored with anchor lines 
and they're, they still float, but they're moored in place, or they're what's called dynamically positioned. So we have positioning systems that link into satellites up in the space. They link into transponders, acoustic transponders, which put out acoustic signals that help you triangulate your position so that the combination of thrusters and combination of propellers keep the rig totally positioned in the same spot, consistent enough to where you can actually drill a well from it. Mm. The water depth these things operate in range from a dynamically positioned rig. There are some. In fact, there's only one that I know of. It's a round rig. I call it the world's largest floating donut. It's round, and it can actually it's stable enough to where it can actually work dynamically positioned in water depths as shallow as 800 feet. Most of your DP dynamically positioned rigs, they need about 1,500 feet of water to operate. That's so that when the rig moves around a little bit, the angle of your connecting uh, riser pipe down to the blow-up presenter on the seafloor stays at a manageable level, which is typically a degree and a half or less. So that kind of, you have to have what's called a pretty tight circle that you keep the rig within. So you need a good amount of distance to keep that reasonable. So that's about 1,500 feet of water. And rigs are rated to drill all the way up into 12,000 feet of water. That's full water column before you even reach the seafloor. Wow. Well, uh, uh, Joe, I've spent a, I spent quite a lot of years in the Navy and uh, even at times uh, called out drop anchor. What are the anchor lines made of and do they actually, the anchor lines go down thousands of feet like an, a Navy ship would or is the, the whole anchor system quite different? No, the anchor system is what's called a catenary system, so there's a, there's a little bit of a, a drape to it, and uh, most, anchor, most production platforms have what's called a passive anchoring system, which means there's no winch. The anchors are all on, on, you have an anchor, you've got a decent amount of anchor chain, and each of the chain links are, gosh, I'm thinking roughly a foot to a two feet in diameter, and then that's just to give you enough mass on the seafloor tied to your suction pile anchor, and then... From there, through the water column, it's a woven polyester rope that's approximately, oh, it's a little bit oblong in shape, maybe a foot in one dimension and 10 inches in the other. So these are woven polyester mooring lines that are tested against wow. sharks and all other kind of things that uh, might come your way out there. Now, I'm so guessing that you, that you must have uh, scuba divers on a platform if something needs repairing uh, below the platform. We have divers, but they're limited to maybe a few hundred feet. So the actual draft of these vessels is about 100 feet in draft. So we can actually have divers if something needs to be done on the hull. But on the mooring system or anything in relation to the drilling of the well, we use robots, which are called ROVs, remote-operated vehicles. These vehicles have manipulator arms. They have pressure capabilities, uh, cameras, uh, it's pretty amazing what, what we're able to do with these things to enable us to operate the equipment on the seafloor using a remote set of cameras and manipulator arms to get our work done. Mm -hmm. This sounds to be easily as sophisticated technologically uh, as our space station that's traveling around the world. It has been compared to that, yes. Um, I guess I've just been doing it for 37 years, and it, it's after you do something that long, it, it better be second nature to you, or I guess you could say you just don't get it. But uh, for a person that's uninitiated to it, I can appreciate the fact that it just see, it has a certain wow factor to it.
Yeah. It's sort of like a small city because, I mean, if there are two, over 200 people, that's like the equivalent of a destroyer escort, for example. Yes, it is. It is a small city. There's full meal service 24 7. Um, there's, uh, there are, you know, movie rooms. Uh, well, most of the new rigs actually have golf simulators on it, so you can go hit yourself around <laughs> on a golf simulator. Wow. Full weight room. Uh, it's, it, it's not, it's, much different from what it was 37 years ago when I started, trust me. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, let's get in a little bit to some of the politics of offshore drilling. Tom did a okay. terrific job in opening up the, the craziness that's uh, going on. So how would you sum up the current administration's uh, attitude toward offshore drilling in response to Tom explaining that they're flip-flopping back and forth. What do you see your future of your industry in the next couple of years with the Biden administration being in charge? And coupled to that, I'm quite sure, nobody's challenged me when I say that uh, the Democrats will lose the House of Representatives in the midterm elections next November. I don't know if that will make a difference in your industry or not, but what are your opinions? Well, there's opinion and then there's the reality. Um, I know that you have, well, I think we all recognize that, that politicians, they, they appeal to certain portions of their base and they say things, and I think they say them honestly, they, they intended to do it, but there's what you want to do and then there's what the law allows you to do. So while the administration said they want no more oil and gas drilling, I, I, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I think what they wanted was no new oil and gas leases issued, which is clearly what they did. When they came in, they said, look, we need to take a look at the total environmental impact, not only of what you do, but the impact of the oil and gas that you generate. And as that goes through the delivery chain from upstream to midstream, which is the whole refinery and and pipeline network to the point of sale, through the ultimate use by the public, and the increased CO2 that reaches the atmosphere, they said, look, we wanted to understand all that, so we're going to take a pause. And depending upon your point of view, how you think about climate change and the rest of those issues, I have my own views on it. Uh, I'll keep them separate at this point. But there's what you want to do and what you can do. And I think a lot of folks, when they're out there campaigning, and they don't really have an appreciation for the regulatory environment, what that requires and what that entails. The administration has every right to say, hey, we're going to suspend lease sales, and there's a legal way you do that, and that's through what's called the rulemaking provision. The rulemaking provision requires you to follow the will of Congress, which states that you will have a five-year leasing plan. You can change that, but you have to go through the rulemaking provision to do so. So the prior five-year leasing plan was set by the Trump administration, which called for two Gulf-wide lease sales for the areas that were open to leasing, which is only the central and the western Gulf of Mexico, which is essentially offshore Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Florida is totally off-limits, and it has been, gosh, for almost the duration of my career. So every twice a year, spring and the fall, you would have an area-wide lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico. The Biden administration said, we want to put pause on that. Uh, The Attorney General from Louisiana, Jeff Landry, along with, I think, 12 other Attorney Generals, might not have the number right, said, no, you can't do that. You have to follow the law. You have to actually propose a new leasing program, put that out for public comment. You are required by law to address all those comments, positive and negative, 
I'd show how your change is addressing those comments and issues raised and then issue what's called a final rule or a revised five-year leasing plan. That takes about two years to do. So the courts, rightfully so, came back to the Biden administration and said, no, you may want to do that, but the law does not allow you to do it unless you follow what's called the rulemaking provisions, which they did not do. But uh, they still haven't started that, so they still are required to hold a lease sale. So although a lease sale was not held in the spring, the Biden administration did follow the court order, and they did hold a lease sale here in the fall. It'll be interesting to see uh, if the winning bids the winning bids have to be evaluated by the Department of Interior to make sure the tax holders, taxpayers are getting a good value for the money based upon what the Interior Department feels is the overall value and prospectivity of the lease. So that process is ongoing. So even though a lease sale has been held, leases have not been awarded. So that's going to be the next step. And uh, it'll be curious to see if the Biden administration is going to follow through and actually award the leases to the winning bidders who won those leases in the lease sale by meeting the minimum bid threshold. There's a minimum amount of money you have to bid per lease, and then they have to evaluate whether that's a fair return to the taxpayers. There's what yes, they want to do, and there's what the law allows them to do. So, so far, the impact has been that a lease sale that was supposed to occur this spring has not occurred, and the lease sale that did occur in the fall, those leases have yet to be awarded. Mm. So while the administration is following the law to this point, it, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next month or two to see if those leases are actually awarded. Mm -hmm. Well, the environmental group, Earth Justice, they've launched a lawsuit on December 3rd to try to halt the leases coming into effect in February. Do you think they're likely to be successful? I don't think so, because what's your justification for it? The only justification you could have for it is that the Department of Interior going through the permitting process and the environmental impact analysis that they have done to justify the lease sale was inadequate. Mm -hmm. So you have to, once again, there's, there's what you want to do and then there's what the law requires you to do. Well, you described beautifully at the very beginning uh, the technology which should appear to our listeners to be extremely environmentally safe so what are the major improvements in offshore drilling technology in the last decade that has made it uh, as safe as it is? And people, you know, remember the, the disastrous spill uh, years back that yeah. gave offshore drilling a, a bad name. Was that all people who didn't do their jobs right or equipment that wasn't adequate? Was there already the technology that should have eliminated that major spill? Or as a result of that spill, has the technology improved tremendously in the last 10 years? I think, uh, to answer your question, there, there's been an awful, I think an awful lot of lessons learned came from, from that exercise. And I'll just really go through them real quickly. So from the very beginning, when you design a well, you are now required by law to design a well such that you have two barriers for every single path that the oil could possibly take from your wellbore to getting into the Gulf of Mexico. And those wellbores have to be, in, those barriers have to be installed and tested, and you have to test them on a regular basis. And that has to be incorporated into your design. 
So your design has to have barrier analysis. Your design has to be verified by two different in, uh, outside engineering firms called a professional engineer who's not part on your payroll to verify your design. There are design checks that you now go through that you have to show that even before you drill your well, you have got an ability to contain the well. When Macondo happened, the industry did not have a containment mechanism in place and ready to go. That was developed relatively quickly on the fly during that actual event. And I think the response from industry was to the event, although the incident was extremely regrettable, not only environmental damage, but what a lot of people fail to realize is 11 people lost their lives that day. And I did not know them, but I knew people who did. And it's a, it's a small industry population, you know, total people involved. So it's something that each of us are profoundly affected by. So that mechanism to actually cap the well and the capping stack that was used to do that was developed in, in less than 60 days, installed, and utilized. So I think that, that was an achievement. But I got to admit that the industry probably should have had some forethought in advance and had that ready to go. Since then, there are two well containment companies that are in place that serve the Gulf of Mexico. Both of them have multiple capping stacks. Both of them have all kinds of technology and the ability to deploy that technology on a moment's notice. Uh, I'm the chairman of the board of the Helix well, HWCG Well Containment Group. It's a group where 14 oil companies have come together to act as one, to pool resources, pool technical expertise, pool response capabilities to respond. There's a, another organization called Marine Well Containment Company. That's another 10 oil companies have come together to actually give duplicate, you know, a, a backup effort to that one as well. So you combine it all together, and both organizations have shown that uh, on a moment's notice, they can have a capping stack in place in 6,000 feet of water in the Gulf of Mexico, landed, shut, and a well capped. One time it took six days. The other time it took seven days. So in roughly a week, a Macondo event can be addressed. And in the <clears throat> interim, we've got additional technologies to make sure that we're doing everything we can to mitigate the flow of oil should it ever occur again. It hasn't occurred again since then. I think the overall well designs now are much more stronger. They're more robust. And we have got better prevention mechanisms from ever having it happen. And we certainly have better response capabilities such that you will never see a continuing event like that in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. so I think that is, that is lost on a lot of people. Uh, we drill every year. Uh, in this past year, our organization drilled, and it took us 36 hours from notification of the call being made go to that capping stack being ready to put on a vessel in the ship channel outside of Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a response capability I don't think most people are aware of. You know, in my view, I think we can act, industry can respond faster than the regulator and the regulatory agencies, the Coast Guard, the Department of Interior can actually approve the next step from an approval process. Our, physical reaction process is faster than the government approval process, which is the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to give people some perspective, that's the deep water horizon rig you're talking about at the Macondo oil area? That's correct. Yeah. And that was almost 12 years ago, and you haven't had anything like that remotely since. No, we haven't. Mm -hmm. Now, if you compare it with land-based spills, how often do they occur? Uh, good question. I'm not familiar with how, 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 what the frequency of land-based spills are. Uh, I can tell you that offshore, 
Well, we, we are required to report anything that generates any kind of sheen on the surface. So if I had a little bit of hydraulic oil from my remote submarine, actually uh, maybe a half a cup, get out, we report it. We oh, report every cup. single spill, regardless of size, regardless of significance. So a lot of people, I think, take the number of spills that we have and say, oh, gosh, look at that high number. Well, just think about it on land from how many people are changing oil in their car, how many people yeah. do all kind of things that just put any type of hydrocarbon-based materials out into the environment, whether it's WD-40, whether it's hydraulic oil uh, coming from your shock absorbers or wherever, we report everything. So I think that is commendable. And then when you take a look at the actual volumes, they're extremely small. Most companies have gallons that they report each year, not barrels, and certainly not thousands of barrels. That begs the question whether or not you work closely with onshore oil drilling or uh, are these two separate industries that don't get together to discuss uh, potential common problems? Well, we do. I think, yeah, we do. I know, I mean, certainly we use all the same common suppliers are, are the same to a large extent. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of oil companies, you, you have an offshore division, you have an onshore division. Uh, companies that are integrated, where I worked at Shell, it was integrated, and we certainly shared a lot of safety information from onshore to offshore. Uh, the company I'm in right now is 100% offshore, totally focused on the deep water. So we, we literally don't have uh, any onshore operations at all. So therefore, we, we tend to focus and share learnings and experiences with other offshore operating arms of other oil companies. Well, that's a good place to take a break for a commercial. When we come back, Joe, can we talk about the fact that offshore oil rigs actually make a great environment for marine life? You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel pack vitamins. Uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from HealthyCell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. 
fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cells REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. So, Joe, could you tell us about how oil rigs offshore, surprisingly, make great environments for marine life? Well, you know, you, you, you've got a structure out there and literally uh, almost a, a liquid desert, if you will, and uh, fish and all kinds of marine life. But one thing they really appreciate is cover. So when you put a structure out there, whether it's on the seafloor itself or whether it goes through the water column, it tends to act, congregate uh, marine life even on the floating vessels. Uh, one of the things you'll always notice is that when you see a picture of a rig offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, you've got all, somehow the sports fishermen always seem to find it because that attracts marine life as well. So uh, on the shallower waters of the Gulf of Mexico, which is essentially 1,400 feet of water and less, you've got six-leg platforms. Those six-leg platforms have tremendous amounts of marine life on them from corals to all kinds of uh, mussels, you know, anything you see that adheres to the bottom of the boat, you generate a tremendous amount of marine life that adheres to the legs of any kind of fixed structure that doesn't move, even if, a float, even if it's simply floating. Mm-hmm. And that attracts an awful lot of fish. It attracts its own ecosystem. And it's so well known and it's so well understood that the federal government has a program called Rigs to Reefs where they actually encourage operators to actually abandon their platform in place. So you may be in 1,400 feet of water. You have a massive structure the size of a skyscraper below you that is actually sitting with legs that are driven into the seafloor. And you're going to go in with some divers, and you might actually cut the upper section, maybe 30 feet above you will cut it out. So at 30 feet below the sea level, everything will be cut off. And that whole structure, after the wells have been fully abandoned, full of cement, properly capped and everything, you will leave that structure in place because it generates tremendous amount of marine life. A lot of the fishermen appreciate the fact that that attracts an awful lot of commercial fishing and whatever. Uh, It's just overall beneficial. It's recognized when abandoned properly that it's an overall huge beneficial aspect of of the marine life of the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Well, are they doing much in the industry to make the public aware of this? Because this sounds great. Yeah, they have. I mean, if you if you go ahead and Google Rigs to Reefs, you should be able to find out all kinds of information about the program itself. It's it's not very well understood. Another aspect of offshore drilling that's not well understood but needs to be is that the royalties that generate the federal government that go into the federal government's treasury those royalties pay for the national restoration of our national parks. Money mm-hmm. from offshore oil and gas is totally dedicated to making sure our parks are maintained and even restored. A tremendous amount of money. As part of NOIA, we, we do publicize the millions that the offshore oil and gas royalty revenues go towards conservation efforts to protect our nation's public lands. It's the largest supply of funding outside of direct funding from the Treasury to keep our national parks up and running. Money from offshore oil and gas is the second largest contributor to the U.S. Treasury right behind the IRS. So there's an awful lot of fiscal benefits that our federal government enjoys. I don't think Mm -hmm. people are anywhere near uh, aware of those benefits. 
you you glossed over one word uh, that was interesting to me when you said marine life likes cover. It's a desert out there. And uh, the word cover is interesting to me because I have a sizable fish pond at my home. And uh, part of it is covered by a, uh, a deck. And when the sun is not shining, especially in the winter, all the fish move in under the cover. And so it's interesting that that is uh, a factor in the rigs attracting uh, marine life. Uh, that, that's really fascinating to me. Absolutely. You know, another thing that most people don't realize it, but fish actually display a behavior similar to dogs. You know, your dog starts to mouth water. He starts hanging around the bowl at about five o'clock when it's feeding time. Well, we actually dispose of our kitchen waste. It goes through a grinder called the, the golf grinder, and uh, you open up the metal latch to it. In goes your, the food waste, no paper waste, just, just simple food waste. is ground up, and it's discharged overboard, and it is a feeding frenzy from the fish, and they actually get acclimated to it. And I've tested the theory out because I've gone over just in the middle of the day outside of the normal feeding time, and I clanged the top of the... <laughs> of the food grinder, and all of a sudden you see the fish start to gather near the exit point where that comes out below the surface of the water. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. So they welcome the rigs too, the fish. <laughs> oh, they, uh, they, they get acclimated to that easy, easy, easy feed pretty quick. That's very cool. Well, it's interesting that the average citizen remembers the oil spill 12 years ago and has not really caught up with the fact that, by and large, offshore drilling has tremendous environmental benefits in, instead of uh, the negatives. So I think we still have a long way to go in getting your industry to be welcomed with open arms. You've already explained you support the national parks. You're a major contributor to the U.S. Treasury and maybe Maybe the biggest technological situation in uh, safety and now, uh, you know, the marine life that uh, benefits tremendously. So eventually one day, and I think if your industry uh, does more and more public education, I suppose that's a costly thing. But I think we may get to the point where the average citizen recognizes offshore drilling as a beneficial in every way, aside from the obvious of providing us with petroleum resources, which not only fuel our transportation vehicles, but uh, are involved in over 6,000 products that use derivatives from petroleum that people don't even think of. Right now, there's an effort to abandon uh, oil because of the fraud of man-caused global warming and they think, oh, we can have an electric car and get around there. 20 reasons why that isn't going to happen in gigantic numbers. But what people fail to realize is how important petroleum derivatives are to virtually almost every product. Uh, whoever, the people listening to this show right now, if they look around the room that they're sitting or standing in, I guarantee you that 80% of the objects in that room wouldn't exist without derivatives from petroleum. I think that's absolutely true. And I think one thing that most people don't realize is that all oil is not the same. 
So the oil that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico is coming out of what's called traditional oil reservoirs. These are reservoirs that are, are you know, they're, they're sand or they're silts and sandstone, siltstone, and the oil sits between the grains of the rock and it flows through the grains of the rock, around the grains of the rock, into the well, up to the platform, onto the refinery. Well, that's different than what we see onshore. Onshore is now totally dominated by what I call frack oil. Frack oil is oil that will not flow on its own. You literally have to frack the rock, increase the surface area, so that the oil itself can ooze out into a network of fractures that are packed with sand that enable the oil to actually go into the well bore, come out of the well, and, and get where it needs to go. And because of the path that that oil takes getting out of the shale, where the pore spaces are so tiny, I mean, they're microscopic, you get a very light oil. If you want to know what it's like, it's called, we have something called API gravity. I know most people don't understand that. Offshore oil is somewhere in the 20s. Onshore oil is API gravity of 49. What is that? Take a look at a big lighter. The oil in a big lighter is API gravity 50, butane. So you're essentially getting butane and a very light oil. You struggle to get jet fuel, diesel, higher-end products, anything that's beyond gasoline and your lighter-end uses, propane, butane, those types of applications you can get from frack oil. But oil you get out of the Gulf of Mexico, you get the full range of products. You get all the high, heavier ends. You can get your plastics out of it. You can get your diesel. You can get your jet fuel. You can get your lube oils. It is a totally multi-purpose oil. And I know mm -hmm. people like to say, oh, gosh, we're energy independent. It's true if you believe every barrel of oil is the same and on a net basis we have been an exporter of oil. We no longer are. I think we're balanced now and we're soon going to start importing more than we export. But we have always imported a tremendous amount of oil, even when we were energy independent because we were a net exporter. We produce so much of that light frack oil, we literally can't use it. The rest of the world loves it. They use it as a blending stock for various applications. It has a lot more value outside the United States than inside the United States, and we still need a tremendous amount of imported oil, very similar to the oil we drill for offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. So if you wanted to see more oil that adds different value across the whole chain, you really want more offshore oil because it is multi-purpose. It actually displaces imported oil almost on a barrel-for-barrel -barrel basis. Mm -hmm. So you are concerned about climate change, and you are convinced that CO2 plays a, a, a considerable role. It plays a role, but the question is, gee, what, how much of a role? I, I personally think it, it's relatively minor, but all right, for sake of argument, let's say you're right, it's major. And we have to go through this energy transition, and it's going to take decades to do so. You cannot go cold turkey off of oil. We can see what we're trying to do that now globally, and oil today is like $85 a barrel, and some folks are predicting somewhere between 100 and 200 in the next six months. Cool. We'll see whether that occurs or not. But if you have to get your oil from somewhere to go through this transition, so the world, I guess in my opinion, doesn't go through an economic Heimlich maneuver, don't you want to get your oil from the lowest emissions intensity place? So offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, our emissions intensity is about 20 kilograms of CO2 for every barrel of oil equivalent we produce. You want to get it from overseas. It has to be transported on a tanker. Your emissions are going to go up. If you want to get it from the heavy oil sands, it's 70 kilograms of CO2 per barrel oil equivalent. So we're roughly as much as one-third of the CO2 to acquire the oil from offshore, it's multi-purpose, 
displaces imports on a barrel-for-barrel basis, adds money into the treasury, improves marine life through greater diversity. You're begging two more questions uh, from me. All right, go. Uh, One is that uh, I'm asked all the time when we were approaching being uh, totally energy independent with regard to oil, they would ask me, well, why are we still importing oil from here or there? And you've answered that Mm -hmm. question because we need specialized oils for different things and we may have less of that. And so we buy it from another country. But the other question is, you're saying that the bulk of our onshore oil is now from horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. Do you feel like we've used up or found and extracted the bulk of the heavy oil you're getting offshore that we once got in the United States 50 or 60 years ago? I don't know. The technology to go after frac oil in known oil-producing provinces like, like the Eagleford Basin of South Texas, the Permian Basin of West Texas, the Marcellus in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, that's known. And one of the questions I'm always asked is, geez, have we found all the oil we're going to find? The answer is obviously no, we haven't. All we've been able to find is the oil that we're aware of using the technology that we're aware of. For a given technology set that never changes and an understanding of the geology that never changes, there absolutely is peak oil. But that's not the world we live in. Ever since I came uh, in geology back in the early 80s, late 70s, I was told, oh, we're running out of oil. We had been running out of oil for 37 years. And we still, uh, global production is at record levels. What's going to be really fascinating, though, is over the next uh, last five, six years, oil has fallen out of favor from the investor class. It's harder to get projects funded. And on a global basis, the amount of oil development money that needs to go to maintain world's production in the 100 barrel, million barrels a day range, which is right about what the world's consuming, the investments have not been there. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be an interesting ride for the next couple of years because you haven't seen the investment to sustain the level of, to even sustain production at current levels. I think that's going to be a greater and greater challenge. So the world will struggle in that respect. Um, I find it fascinating that the president is asking OPEC to produce more, and everyone is saying, oh, OPEC is not respecting the president. They're not producing more. I don't think that's the case. I think they would if they could. They can't. The infrastructure is not there. The majority of OPEC producers do not. They used to cheat uniformly on their quotas back in the 80s, and now I think they would still cheat. Human nature don't change. But the reason why they're not producing is they physically can't. I actually go back further than you, further than 37 years in the the area of petroleum engineering, which I have worked on the edges of. I actually worked with the guy who coined peak oil, and that was M. King Hubbard. He was a very good petroleum engineer, worked for the U.S. Geological Survey, and he had no understanding of human nature. Back in the late 50s and early 60s, when I worked with him, he just saw technology where it was that day, so to speak. He didn't understand we'd have new technologies in finding, extracting, and refining. And so he scared everybody about peak oil. And that really began the idea of getting off oil. And of course, he was totally wrong because technology advanced in every area. And it's, uh, it's still advancing. So you're right. I mean, there's a peak oil, in my opinion, 
it's at least 300 years away. We could argue that at a, another time, but I, I think you're a hundred percent correct. It even gets more bizarre than that. One of the things that has always baffled me is that the Russians have drilled into granite and they have found hydrocarbons. That's been predicted. Thomas Gold passed away some years ago, but he was a professor at Cornell University. And he wrote numerous papers uh, about the fact that oil is being generated from the center of the earth. And that's why the Russians never run out because they were smart enough to drill in, uh, in fractured metamorphic rock. There, there are people that still argue that point tremendously, but the mystery exists. The theory of continental drift and subduction trenches, you have got tremendous organic material being thrust down into the earth. So I really think there's a hydrocarbon circulation system we just don't understand. I don't think that really manifests itself into any historic oil fields that we've had in the past, but I think it portends some interesting things as you go forward, and technology enables us to understand better, to literally see better with improved seismic processing, and then the actual drilling technology enables us to actually uh, drill better. Mm -hmm. The senior attorney at Earth Justice, when they put out the information about their lawsuit, they said these leases could potentially be producing oil 50 years from now, which, of course, they presented as a problem. I, I saw that. I said, great. That's fabulous. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. Uh, one of the things people don't understand, the Gulf of Mexico is a fascinating place. So take a, and take a look at, you want to know what the Gulf of Mexico was like when the oil deposits were laid down, especially the Northlit sands that were now really, really developing extensively. It was like the Middle East. It was like the Dead Sea. The Gulf of Mexico was not connected to the oceans. It was a vast inland sea, totally salt-saturated, just like the Great Salt Lake. And thousands and thousands of salt were laid down. And then due to continental drift, the Gulf of Mexico was opened up and it was exposed to the oceans. And it was exposed to all the erosional sediments coming into it from the Rio Grande and the Mississippi rivers. And on top of that salt, you put down 40 up to 40,000 feet of sediment, the largest sediment pile on the earth. I'm literally sitting on it right now in South Louisiana. It's called the Terrebonne Trench. And when you put that much weight of sediment on salt, it becomes plastic. And the salt starts to ooze through the earth. And it rises up through the earth. And in some places, it actually pierces the surface. Next time you have a bottle of Tabasco sauce, look at the label. It says Avery Island, Louisiana. It's not an island. Avery Island is a salt structure that pierces through the surface of the earth in the coastal plain of Louisiana, and it looks like an island out there along the flat coastal plain in southwest Louisiana. And into that, they dug into that salt, and that salt, they dug into that, into that mound, and they found salt. It's a salt diapir. And as that salt migrates through the earth, in some places it actually finds a weak zone, and it goes, spreads laterally. So you have tremendous thousands of feet of salt have moved from one place to another, it is now covering up vast oil deposits that we're only now just being able to really see through and we're actually drilling through. That begs two more questions. One, let me make yeah. it clear to listeners, you, the geology you've been describing uh, takes millions of years, not, <laughs> not yeah. yesterday or a century oh, ago. Yeah. Uh, and the other one is, how do you locate oil on the surface of the ocean what is the technology there? I think people can better understand 
how we can survey geology onshore. And we have different yeah. instruments that, you know, see below the earth, so to speak. It would seem to be way more difficult to discover where oil is many thousands of feet below the ocean. And yet we're doing it very successfully. How does that work? Well, the way it works is, is seismic technology. So you have a boat, and uh, it, it just has a bunch of streamers, and it has a bunch of uh, acoustic phones on it, and it tows an array of phones, and it has below it an air gun, and it sets out uh, an air blast goes into the water, and that generates a sound wave. That sound wave goes from the surface, goes down through the sea, all through the seawater, into the sediments at the bottom of the sea, and well into the rock, 40,000 feet down. And as that energy goes down, it generates echoes that come back. And as the boat moves, it's tied into GPS, so you know exact position of the, the uh, acoustic wave generated by the air gun all the way down through the water column, and you know the exact position of each of your receivers. So you have an echo trace. It's like radar or sonar, if you will. And you get a seismic trace, and you process using computing computer code and algorithms to process that signal to generate a sonogram of the earth. It's literally just like a sonogram. Most folks are familiar with who've had kids, what you can now see on sonograms and the level of resolution those provide. We don't have quite that resolution, but on a miles of scale, we actually get an incredible view of the earth, and we can actually see inside of it. And we've been able to do different processing of the signal of the acoustic sound and how that behaves as you change the angle of the sound wave hitting the sea and the angle of the sound wave reflecting back. And how that changes with position gives you indications of oil or water. It's called amplitude versus offset. There's a tremendous amount of computing power that goes into it. What most people don't realize is that digitizing those acoustic signals on what is called the Nyquist frequency. Nyquist was an engineer who determined how often you need to sample an audio signal so that you lose none of the information. The Nyquist frequency is the foundation behind DVDs, CDs, and all digitization of signals of sound and even images. So you can make an argument that the whole entire digitization revolution that we enjoy on our MP3 players and everything else it has its roots in the oil field and seismic processing. We use those seismic images to understand structures. We, then the geologist comes in and he puts together a story. Okay, that's a snapshot in time, but the geologist comes in and puts together a story about, okay, what happened geologically? What moved? What changed? And where would the oil possibly migrate from to fill certain zones and layers that we then drill into and either prove or disprove his theory? Well, one uh, set of numbers that uh, I'm curious about is that in reading about onshore oil wells versus offshore oil wells, the reduction in yield uh, in the first year or two declines far more dramatically onshore than it does offshore, making you know offshore drilling ultimately more economic. Any idea why that is? Yeah, it, 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 the whole entire reason, it, we're drilling for different reservoirs. As I mentioned earlier, onshore is predominantly going for tight oil. So I really think you're getting very little oil production on a frack well 
you're, you're getting it by linking up the fracture network. You're not getting very much oil coming from the actual rock itself. Your fracture network is linking up very little pockets and cracks in the rock, and you're producing from the crack, frac the natural fracture network of the rock. You're knitting that together, and that depletes very quickly. And the oil that comes out of the actual rock matrix itself comes through extremely slow because the pores are so small and everything is so tight. That's why it's called tight oil. So the average production on the well in the Permian Basin declines 45% after just one year. So if I have a well that starts out at uh, 1,000 barrels a day, it's down to 450 after just one year. Offshore, uh, because the zones we produce from are more like uh, beach sand, if you will, very high pore space, lots of room for the oil to move through. It's driven by pressures, a water pressure. If it's I've got an aquifer feeding the oil column or actual overburden pressure of the rock itself, because the rock's a little more spongy. They'll actually compress. That's called compressibility of the rock that drives the oil to the well. And we see commonly we'll see a we'll see a two to three year flat life. We won't see any production decline at all for two or three years. And then we'll see about a ten percent per annual production decline, ten to fifteen percent production decline per year once the initial production is uh once the far field pressure is caught up to the depletion around the well bore. Mm-hmm. Well you've explained sort of a little bit negatively with regard to frac oil, horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracturing, which of course is absolutely accurate. But what our listeners might be interested in knowing that shale is the most common sedimentary rock around the world. And a huge, a huge amount of that shale uh, contains oil, which we only learned to develop uh, starting about 20 years ago when somebody figured out how we could drill horizontally. And again, we drill vertically at least 3,000 feet uh, in order to get the drill rod to bend 90 degrees and get us moving horizontally. So while the yields are not near as good, the volumes or the places we can find the oil are, uh, are gigantic. So we'll be getting oil from both. No, it is a huge resource. It's, it's a lot, lot larger resource onshore in the fracking area than offshore and just due to the cost uh, the, co- the cost of, you know the production coming from an offshore well is about 10 times as much as an onshore well and the cost is about 10 times the place that wow. makes offshore economic is the longevity of the wells that's fascinating now i understand there is one area of the world in offshore drilling that's even larger than the uh, gulf of mexico where where is that there's brazil has a tremendous amount of offshore oil. Petrobras has done amazing things in the offshore province of Brazil, uh, West Africa, uh, Nigeria, Angola. has also got a tremendous amount of prospectivity to it. Just from an area, surface area-wise, you just look at the world's basins, uh, petroleum basins offshore. The Gulf of Mexico is, is certainly a major one. It's certainly the most developed one in the world. But there's others that have a whole lot more aerial extent, and they just haven't been explored to the degree the Gulf of Mexico has. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's some really interesting YouTube videos of touring offshore drilling platforms. Do you actually take tourists out there? Because, you know, I would think no. that it would be just as interesting as going to the Kennedy Space Center. No, we don't. Now, there is the uh, Offshore Energy Center in Galveston does have a, a jack-up rig. 
that that's sitting there that tourists can actually go and do, and, and I think quite a few do as they take cruise ships out of Galveston. You can go see what it's like on what's called a jack-up. It's not a floating platform. Uh, in Galveston, there's quite a few floating rigs that are undergoing uh, repairs and, and refurbishment or waiting to work, so you can see them there. They're not the larger ones. Most of uh, the lo- super large deep water rigs are so large that they are too large to go into any U.S. port. Mm-hmm. So they are typically made in China and Korea, especially Korea. And once they leave Korea, they, they never go into a U.S. port because there's not a port in the U.S. that uh, has the draft or the capability for that rig to come in. How do they bring them from Korea? The shortest path is across the Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope, and uh, across the Atlantic, and up into the Gulf. So you drive them as though they were a ship? Absolutely. Wow. Mm. If I lived anywhere near the Gulf, I'd love to make a tour of one of these platforms, but you're saying that they don't generally do that. No. No. uh, It's uh, due to liability issues. it's just not an option for us. Uh, that's one of the things that is regrettable is that uh, I used to take a lot of students offshore on trips, and it's just difficult to do nowadays due to the overall cost. The fact that we're operating so far out, uh, 150 miles out, it's, a, it's usually a good hour-and-a-half helicopter ride. Each, each helicopter out and back will run you somewhere around $15,000 a day, 15000 a trip. Yeah, 12 people offshore, so the, the costs just become prohibitive. I think it would be very enlightening for folks to to go on a trip such as that, but it's just not feasible from a logistics or a cost standpoint. Mm-hmm. How far out are you still considered in American waters for drilling? If you were to look at the Gulf of Mexico and you were to draw a line from Key West over to Corpus Christi, uh, that kind of that's pretty close to defining the U.S.-Mexican border, and we drill right up to that border. Shell uh-huh. Perdido platform. Shell Perdido platform is located in an area of the Gulf where, if you wanted to directionally, you could drill. I think you could drill to Mexico. But yeah, well, there that, are oil fields that straddle the international boundary between the U.S. and Mexico, and uh, huh. I believe there are agreements in place how to handle those production allocations in the two different countries. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we have to wrap up there. We're going to put some videos under the podcast when it goes up on Monday to show people what these rigs are like, because they're pretty incredible. So our guest today was Joe Limecooler, Chief Operating Officer of Beacon Offshore Energy. So thanks for coming on, Joe. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, well, this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the screen.